And now we come to the interview of the month. My guest is David Thomas, the memory man. Let me tell you a bit about David. We'll hear more about his background in the interview. David came fourth in the 1996 World Memory Championships only eight months after starting to learn memory techniques. He achieved the criteria to become an international grandmaster of memory, one of only three people who have achieved this under competition conditions at the time. He is currently one of only two international grandmasters of memory in the USA and the higher rated. In 1998, he broke an 18-year-old Guinness Book of Records memory record by reciting pi to 22,500 digits from memory. In 2004, he set a world record for memorizing and reciting 100 individually shuffled packs of playing cards. It took him 65 hours over four days, and out of 5,200 cards, he misplaced only 12. David has written a best-selling book, Essential Life Skills, Improving Your Memory, which has already sold over 80,000 copies and is published in more than 15 countries. David has spoken in 12 countries to all sizes of audiences and organizations, including blue-chip companies, schools, government departments, to name but a few. In the interview, David explains about memory techniques and how to be even more successful. So, let's go to the interview now. David Thomas, welcome to the Achievers Edge and thank you for sparing the time to be with me today. David, how's life with you? Things are absolutely fantastic, Peter. Excellent news. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you right at the start of this interview, and I've got many questions to ask you, in fact, is to find out where you came from to this point in time. In other words, the gap between where you weren't successful and now the fact you are. So, tell me the story. Wow. I mean, as a child, I didn't have the greatest upbringing. My mother was a lifelong alcoholic. And by the time I was six, she'd remarried a guy who was 64 years old. And he was physically abusive towards me and my brother. So for the following 12 years, until I left home, I did suffer one form of abuse or another, unfortunately. By the time I was 16, it all went badly wrong. I ended up getting expelled from school. I got a criminal conviction. I assaulted a police officer with an iron bar. I was committing multiple burglaries. And I attempted suicide. It was a very difficult time. It sounds like But looking back, I think the biggest lesson for me looking back at that time is that there was no responsibility taken by me whatsoever. I was a typical yes but person going, yes but you don't understand, yes but, yes but, yes but. Instead of going, yeah, it's me that's doing these things, I should have accepted responsibility. I did clean up my act and I got an office job which I didn't like. And then at the age of 20 I joined the fire service, which having bright red hair at that point made me at the very least slightly attractive to the opposite sex, <laughs> which had been a rarity up until that point, Peter. But it was great. Because one in every 40 people that apply to become a fireman get through. The other 39 do not. So being a northern working class lad, it was, I was now top of the food chain. And I loved it. But I wasn't very bright. In fact, my nickname, and this is true, my nickname in the fire service was Thrombo, which was short for thrombosis, as in a slow-moving clot. It's one of those things, <laughs> it's one of those things where you start laughing and you go, <laughs> oh, it's about me, it's about me. Yeah. But it was, you know, I've always said that being in the fire service, it was not survival of the fittest, but survival of the wittiest. Yeah. You need a quick man. I loved it, but I failed my promotion exams. And then, one day, when I was 28 years old, I'm watching television, and I saw a guy called Dominic O'Brien, a legend in the memory field, come on television, memorise a pack of playing cards. And the bottom line is that I went out and bought his book, taught myself how to do it. I found the techniques quite easy. I found that they weren't based on intellectual intelligence. And it was electrifying. Nothing short of electrifying. 
And he said, eight months I went to the World Memory Championships. Eight months. Eight months later, yeah. Remarkable. What were you doing in that eight months to be able to get yourself from a position where you had an ordinary memory, we might call it, to the point where you were able to compete in the World Memory Championships? What did you do? You know, that is the essence of my success as a whole, you know, since I began in this field. And that is that I was learning techniques. I was learning memory techniques that showed me how to improve my memory. It wasn't based on any predetermined experience or intellectual intelligence or body dementia. The fact is, it was just a question of, you know, how do you memorize a list? That's how you do it. Okay, well, I'll apply that technique. Um, how do you memorize numbers? There's a technique. Well, I'll apply it, learn how to do it. And it was very, very developmental. It evolved. And to me, that was the absolute essence at that particular time that allowed me to become so successful, that once I'd learned how to memorize 10 digits, it was just a rubber stamp job where I could learn how to do 50, or 100, or 500, or 1,000. And it just grew. But 500 and 1,000, I think most people could understand that. <laughs> but 22,500 numbers behind three points in the sense of pi, I mean, that is just incredible. But we'll come back to that. So you got to the World Memory Championships, and what happened? Well, I went to the World Championships and, you know, it was at Simpsons in the Strand, which is one of the great divantiums of London, with an incredible chess history, a magnificent place. I didn't have a tie for the second day. How the hell am I supposed to know that there's a tie policy? I mean, I'm from Halifax. Never been out of the county since I was like 11. It was interesting. But I think the thing that I enjoyed the most is that people treated me as an equal. It was extremely meritocratic, and I loved that. And how did you get on? And I came forth. Well done. And I also became an international grandmaster of memory. Um, at the time, there were only three people in the world that achieved it under competitions, out of six billion people on the planet. Although, to be fair, I don't think all six billion had had a go. I don't think they had. But you don't know what people do in this time. That's, that's absolutely right. And we're going to hop around here with various things, but I've also watched, and I wanted to ask you about this, some excerpts of you on the Oprah Winfrey show. How did that come about, and what did you learn from that experience? Well, first question, how did it come about? About five years ago, I was sat down with my girlfriend, and I said, you know, I want to ramp up my profile. She said, well, what show would you like to go on? I said, well, what's the biggest show in the world? And we went, it's got to be Oprah, it's got to be Oprah. So we went on the internet, I found the show, and I emailed the show. I said, my name's Dave, I want to come and see you. <laughs> no reply. 18 months later, emailed me back, they went, okay. Really? That simple? It was the simple as that. Actually, they said to me, they said, um, have you got some footage of you on the BBC? You know, fantastic. Great, great phrase. She went, as long as you've been on the BBC, I'll put you on the show. I'm like, fantastic. So I said, yeah, I've got some footage. So, you know, we met in a car park in Halifax, handed it to a guy in a white van at 6 o'clock in the morning. You know, 10 hours later, 12 hours later, she's phoning me up. She said, right, you're on the show. Fantastic. What I love about that is what you did was you decided what you want. You found out what you needed to do, and then you simply took action, didn't you? Which is what it's all about. It is. There are a lot of dreamers. Yeah. Just so many people who sit there, I'd love to do this. Oh, I wish I had the chance to do this. And actually, it's just not that far away. No. These days, you spend lots of your time, both in the UK and around the world, and particularly in America, standing and speaking at various conferences and events and entertaining people, not just with memory skills, although I know that's part of what you do, 
but also with what you and I have talked about before, David, is motivational stuff, even though we realise there's no such thing as motivation. So can I push you a little bit on that motivational side? What is it that you say to people in your various speeches that gets them fired up so that their eternal motivation is triggered? Well, I think, Peter, that I'm not a preacher. I don't preach to people. I don't tell them what they should do. What I do as a speaker, as a motivational speaker, is I tell people the lessons that I've learned and the path that I've trodden. And hopefully then they will take something from that. Because I think that's the best way. And really, all I do, Peter, is just explain to people the system that I've had for success. And it is a system. Let's be absolutely dead clear, it is a system. And so for me, it's a question of learning from the right source. When I bought my memory book, as it happens, the first memory book I bought was the guy I saw on television, who also happened to be like the seven times world memory champion. So the credibility is relatively high there, I think. But since that, I must have bought 50 or 100 memory books. You know, and it's obvious that 90% of them have been written by people who couldn't memorise, you know, for Toffer. So learning from the right source. And then applying it. Because it doesn't matter how much something works for one person, you need to apply it for yourselves. I think diet is a great example of that. People say, this is a diet, it worked for me, you've got to do it. And yet, you've got to apply it for yourself. And then it's just test and measure, test and measure, test and measure. And then, test and measure again. Find out what you're doing, find out what works, modify the bits that aren't working, have another go, and it will grow. Very organically, it will improve. So how have you used your process of learn from the right source, take action, test and measure, if I've understood that correctly. Have I understood that probably better? Absolutely. Okay. How have you applied that in life? Give me some examples where that's worked for you. The main thing for me is as a speaker. You know, when I started in speaking, I'll be honest, I, I was bloody awful. And I knew I was awful. So what did I do? I found the best speaker I knew, which was Steve McDermott in Leeds. You know, fantastic. Great speaker. And uh, he's a wonderful speaker. And I went to see Steve and I sat down with Steve at the White Bear at Tingley Roundabout and we had an hour together and I managed to get about 30 seconds in like you do with Steve um, but I sat there and just soaked up all this information and then I joined the Professional Speakers Association but 85% of people in the PSA are want to be speakers don't want to speak to them so I find the people who are being successful who are where I want to be and then I ask them how they did it so I go and see them like I've come to see you today you know, we could have done this as a telephone interview, but I wanted to see you and meet you face to face because that is the best way to learn and get the best out of other people and then be able to offer something in return. One of the things that you talk about, David, when you're on stage speaking and generally when you're talking to people is this gap analysis, I would call it. What's your expression for it? The well, I came up with this phrase called the ignorance gap. And it's one of those phrases where you think... Did I hear it somewhere else and pick it up? And hopefully I didn't. Hopefully it's something that came out of my tiny mind when those two brain cells had a chat one day and came up something original, which is rare for me. But the ignorance gap is a very simple concept, and that is that most people are where they are, and they know where they would like to be. And there's a gap between the two, but they're ignorant about how to bridge that gap. Now understand, Peter, I'm not talking about malevolent ignorance. Most people think of ignorance as being quite malevolent and dark and but this is a benevolent ignorance. You just don't know how to bridge that gap. So the classic thing is being at work and somebody gets promoted and you don't. And you just think they have something special, they have something different. You can't see how you can bridge the gap between where you are and where they are. So what do you say to people that they should do in order to bridge that ignorance gap? I think you call it IG as opposed to IQ, don't you? Absolutely, yes. Well, the way to bridge that gap is to find out somebody who is where you want to be. 
So this is back to the idea you said Absolutely. before. Find out somebody who's where you want to be, question them, go and bother to see them face-to-face, not just on the telephone. Yes. Really take the effort to meet up with them and ask them the right questions so you can find out how they do what they do in order to be able to bridge your ignorance gap, your knowledge gap, skills gap, ability gap, presumably. Absolutely. I saw a nice example the other day with Simon Cowell, the X Factor judge yes. that everybody loves to hate. But when he started in the business, he worked with Pete Waterman. And Pete Waterman said he was stuck to him for two years. Simon Cowell wouldn't leave him alone, but Simon turned around and said, yeah, but you were the genius in the business. I knew that I needed to know what you knew and then learn it and apply it for myself. And so that's all it is. It's just about finding best practice and then learning it, applying it for yourself and learning from those mistakes. And then analysing and testing. Test and measure, test and measure, test and measure. Also, when I've watched clips of you speaking, David, you've talked about who's dictating your parameters. What do you mean by that? When I was 27 years old and I was a fireman, I sat my promotion exams and I failed them. And I went to this officer and I said, excuse me, sir, what am I going to do? And he said, look, son, just disappear. You're never going to pass that exam. He'd been on that motivational course, as you can tell, Peter. (laughs) Not passed it, but he'd been on it. And um, straight away I thought, oh, okay, because you must know. You've taught gazillions of firemen. You've seen millions of them come through your fingers. Therefore, you must know what's best for me. So I'm operating at a certain level. And don't get me wrong, I was a very happy chappy. I was a fireman. I loved being a fireman. It was a great job. You know, I didn't have any aspirations to do anything else particularly. But what I realise now is that I was operating at a certain level that was dictated by parameters that were set by other people. So I see three main influences in my life at that time were my mother, who said I'd never be any good, then school, who expelled me, and then the fire service, who said you'll never get promoted. So I'm operating at a certain level that's dictated by the key influences in my life. But get a load of this, Peter. They were making decisions about me. They were laying down the parameters when actually they had no idea of what I was truly capable. And so they were making those judgments. And that is, you know, one of the greatest tragedies that I see when I'm speaking is when people come up to me and they go, you know, you've given me that light bulb moment that showed me I can be better and more than I thought I was because I always thought I was stupid. I always thought I was meant to be poor. I always thought I was not meant to be successful. So you're really saying is that so many people in life are allowing other people to decide the rules by which they live their lives and the level of success they achieve? Absolutely. Let's talk about memory. Here you are as one of the, what, top 15 memory... What is it? Give me the right stuff. Well, you know, I've got got various titles, but I'd say... Let's just say I've got developed one of the most powerful memories in history. I think that's grand enough. Oh, I think that's grand enough. (laughs) (laughs) So... To start with, I know that you were tested, MRI scan, about memory with Dominic and various other memory champions. Let's talk about that first. Well, about five, six years ago, a bunch of us memory guys were tested. Because normally what they do with memory is test people who've got deficient memories or who've had brain damage. Sure. But what they decided to do is test what they called SMs, which stands for superior memorizers, which I thought was rather freaky, but suits me fine. And basically, we were tested at University College London doing memory exercises while having our brain scanned using MRI. And the fantastic results were, very simply, that through using memory techniques, we've actually managed to rewire our own brain and use parts of our brain that normally 
lie quite dormant. And it was just astonishing that all the things that I've been talking about for a few years up until that point about the fact that the memory is not a hard drive, it's much more organic, it's about use it or lose it. You know, actually it was just proven by exercise. Wasn't it just? And we talked earlier before the interview about Alzheimer's. Just add that bit of information for me if you would. Well, a fantastic article, Time magazine, cover article. It said that it has now been proven that there is a direct correlation between brain activity during your lifetime and the chances of you getting Alzheimer's or seeing dementia. And that is very, very, very important. Again, massive article. Apparently Alzheimer's is going to be the disease of the next century because the baby boomers are getting up to retirement age. We are getting to the stage where science is going to develop a pill and we're all going to live to 180 years. But, you know, we're going to spend, you know, 95 of those sucking suits for a straw because we are not learning how to use our brain. We're not learning to give it the right stimuli as much as possible throughout the whole of our life. And the reality is that everybody thinks that they stimulate the brain, but they don't. How many people, by the time they get to 50, take up a musical instrument or learn a foreign language or do something that is truly stimulating? They go to the same pub with the same people doing the same job in the same environment. Even if you're a lawyer or something that is seen as quite cerebrally challenging, you're still operating within a very narrow focus. You've got to step out of that. Because once that white matter starts to solidify, it will never come back. So let's talk about memory. How do I describe you? You're a top memory champion? You're a I just say I'm a memory man. A memory man. A memory man. That will do. For that will do nicely. So as we come towards the end of the interview, how about three cracking techniques that anyone listening to us and that I can use to improve my memory, which I think is pretty fair? Well, I think the first major point is that memory is about thinking in images, not in words. Okay. So if I give you the word breakfast, what are you thinking of? I'm thinking of a plate with two pieces of brown toast on it with marmite and butter. There you go. So you're not thinking of the black word on a white background breakfast? No. And yet that's how information usually comes. Yes. It's just that sea of black print in a book. So the thing is, it's about thinking in images. It's about using colour. It's about... Well, look at kids, for example. When you have a child's book, how does it look? It's got images, it's got colour, it's got words. You know, half of it is an image and half of it is text. But what's it like when a child gets to 11 or 12? It's mainly just black words. Yeah. Now, understand this. It's not presented like that to a five-year-old because it's childish. It's presented that way because it's the best way for a child to learn. But if it's the best way to learn when you're five, it's the best way to learn when you're 25 or 105. So the first point is you've got to think in images. Okay. So always be converting into images. Second thing is, how can you apply that names? Number one memory problem. Well, when you meet somebody who's called David Thomas, it doesn't mean anything. If I said my name was Bill Clinton, would you remember my name? Yes! Because you'd have an image. It might not be a great image, it might not be one you want to share. But the thing is, you would have an image nonetheless. So what you've got to do is you've got to do that artificially. So how do I make an image out of the two words David and Thomas? You think of David, you think David and Goliath, imagine I'm swinging a sling. We're sat in your office, Peter. Imagine I'm swinging a sling, I'm smashing your windows. Hits you on the side of the head. You're not really a very happy guy, are you? Oh, I understand. I've you got know, it. It's emotion. You've got to get emotion involved. It's got to be physical. It can be weird. Yeah. But also understand that the image can be anything. Thomas, Thomas, a tank engine. Absolutely. You know, imagine there's a train running around. There's smoke everywhere billing out. How do I link those two images of David and Goliath and you with the sling and the Thomas the Tank Engine picture, which I have firmly in my mind at the it's moment? Got to be, How do I link that to you? It's got to be, you've just got to imagine that I'm absolutely at the centre of that. Imagine I'm here in your office. Imagine I'm swinging it, swinging the sling. So if we meet at a business conference in six months, you remember, it came to my office. 
They came to my office. Now you've got somewhere to find the information. Understanding. So you go back to office and say, God, yeah, he was smashing, he was slinging it. And the great thing about learning both the first name and the surname is if you forget one, you can use the other. Sure. So you can come up and you go, Mr. Thomas, how are you doing? And I go, well, call me David. And you go, well, I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got two bags of the cherry. Excellent. Another technique then. Last one, quick technique. Organisation is critical in memory. Give you a quick analogy. Imagine going into a library and every single book in the library is in a big pile on the floor. Yeah. You say to the librarian, have you got this book? And she says yes. It might be the book on the top, it might be the book on the bottom, you might find it straight away, you might never find it. That's what it's like learning now. People shovel information into the back of their heads and then wonder why they can't find it. Now imagine going into the library now. You say, have you got this book? And they say, yeah, top floor, far corner, look under 360s. You get the book, you leave straight away. That's efficiency. You wouldn't imagine a library built any other way. No. But here's the deal. When they built the library, the quickest way to open it was to shovel in 10,000 books and open on day two. But the most efficient way is to develop a system where they put in each book one by one, mind-numbingly, boringly, tediously, painstakingly, one book at a time. It might take us six months. But at the end of the six months, then they've got an efficient system. That's what you need to do. So, how do you do it? You use places that you know as the filing cabinets of the library system for your head. So if I say to you, you've got to memorise, I don't know, blackboard, bar, clock and brilla, I'll say, imagine a blackboard at your front door. You're coming into the hallway and then there's some leather bags and you've got to crawl over the leather, but you come into the office and there's a clock going bong, 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 and in the corner there's an umbrella. You think it shouldn't be open inside because that's bad luck. So it's a question of creating structure. I like it. You know, the bottom line here, Peter, is as the coverall point is that improving your memory is about system, technique, strategy, practice, and application. It's not about inherent intelligence or intellect. Everybody has got a perfect memory. They've just got to learn how to tap into the memory that already exists. David, I don't think we could end on a better note than that. What can I say? David Thomas ex-villain, ex-firefighter and now <laughs> grand for being Adam, Peter. memory well, champion. Well, Thank you so much for spending so much time for the Achievement Stage. I appreciate it. Well, wasn't that fascinating? What can we take away from that interview with David Thomas? To start with, taking responsibility, total responsibility for our own actions and not allowing anyone else to dictate our parameters. Then, David's system for success. Learn from the right source apply what we've learned and then test and measure, test and measure, test and measure and then test and measure again. I love David's thoughts that when we want to learn from someone, go and see them. Don't only do it on the phone. When David talked about memory skills, he clearly stated that it's essential that we keep on using our brains, undertaking new mental challenges so that we have the best chance of avoiding mental difficulties later in life. His key ideas for memorising anything were to use imagery and to file the information effectively so it's easier to retrieve. You'll recall the library analogy he used. If you'd like to know more about David's work or his book, or to book him for your next event, then simply pop over to his website, aptly named www.themotivationspeaker.com.